in uh, September, Iran's uh, morality police arrested a 22-year-old woman by the name of Masa Amini in Tehran for what they deemed to be inappropriate clothing. They took her to a police station where uh, something happened, and she died on September 16th uh, in a hospital. Her death has sparked uh, massive protests across Iran and has led to at least what uh, is being claimed to an end uh, to this infamous morality police. The question now is, is this actually going to happen? And who exactly are or what exactly is the morality police and what lies ahead for Iran? A lot of questions. To help us answer that, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Rubin, who's the author of several books, including Eternal Iran, Continuity and Chaos, and Dancing with the Devil, The Perils of Engaging Rogue Regimes. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he specializes in Iran, Turkey, and the broader Middle East. He's also a former Pentagon official. He's lived in post-revolution Iran, Yemen, and both pre- and post-war Iraq. Dr. Rubin, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thank you for having me. So this uh, event, this this tragic death of uh, Masa Amini, did this come as a surprise to you, or was this something that uh, was possibly going to happen, but it needed something to spark the fire? Well, for some time, Iran has been a tinderbox, and the question is whether the regime is better at smothering the embers than others are, and that outrage is at fanning the flames. Certainly, you had a charismatic young woman whose jeans were allegedly too tight. Um, she was forced into a van, and at some point, she was beaten to death. Now, I used to live in Tehran. I used to be warned about the morality police. And oftentimes, if you are forced into their van, then it becomes a shakedown. Your family has to pay bribes and so forth. Maybe she said something, maybe not, but certainly um, the outrage that she was killed for something so minor is what, what caused these protests to erupt. The running society has already signed up. So the, the morality police, I think it's, it's translated technically as guidance patrols. Would that be correct from the, the Farsi? Uh, yes, it would be. Although, um, for example, you've always had some sort of institution that, that did this sort of thing, dating back to the time of revolutionary leader Ayatollah Khomeini, who took over in 1979. Uh, oftentimes, Iranians don't even call them by their given name because it shifts so much. They just talk about them as Hezbollah, which literally means party of God. Uh, the Iranians use it in a different context than the terrorist group. They just use it as these scruffy um, sort of police who harass them um, in upper middle class areas of Tehran, trying to compel women to um, wear the full hijab and, and while in theory, there's no compulsion in Islam, which is what oftentimes uh, proselytizers of Islam say. Life in Iran shows quite the opposite. Yeah, the requirement for head coverings, a hijab, um, also fits with there are certain requirements for modesty. Now, that extends to both men and women, doesn't it? It, it does. And so men, for example, have to wear uh, sleeves, long pants. You wouldn't see a lot of people running around in uh, sports, for example, unless there were very little boys uh, and so forth inside Iran. Um, the, the issue then is, though, who gets to decide what modesty is? If your audience Googles Iran in the 1960s or 1950s, or even Egypt in the 1950s, 
you're going to find women in skirts uh, that are above their knees. I mean, what, what happened is you had the Ayatollahs and very conservative religious factions take over in 1979 uh, and try to impose this draconian um, social code upon women. And if, I, I'm a historian by training, which means I get paid to predict the past. My critics would say I'm going to get that right half the time. But if you want to actually look at the genesis of Ayatollah Khomeini, where he first came to public notice was back in 1961 in something called the White Revolution, where he was rabble-rousing and opposing equal rights for women and the equality of all Iranians under the law, regardless of their religion. So he really had this, this reactionary bent to him, which he was able to impose through the point of the gun back in 1979. Now, how uh, rigidly enforced is this, and, and how many Iranian women actually do adhere strictly to this dress code? Um, well, what oftentimes happens is Iranian women will um, try to push the boundary. And young people are young people in almost any country. A lot of them resent the compulsion, um, and so there's an element of rebellion, and there's also an element of comfort. I mean, Iran can be very... Uh, hot. It can be humid at times. People don't necessarily like to be fully covered. Uh, and women are interested in fashion. There's also a sense that hypocrisy is right, because even uh, the clerics uh, and government bureaucrats and revolutionary guardsmen, when they go on vacation uh, to Turkey, for example, their women won't wear head coverings. They will wear much more racy clothing, uh, lipstick, and so forth. And so um, there's, there's a little bit of if you will, speaking truth to power inherent in this. Uh, unfortunately, um, Masa Amini confronted someone who was a criminal, was in it for the power, in it for the wrong reasons. She ended up dead, but this was a story which touched the nerve of all Iranians because so many Iranians have had close calls with the religious police, and even if they've gotten off with their lives, it may have been after a shakedown, which they deeply, deeply resent. What has been the government's response, the, the Iranian regime, to all of this so far? And, and I know it's difficult to predict these things, but uh, what do you think is coming? Well, first of all, we've had a series of protests uh, sparked by different reasons. In 1999, it was over um, newspaper closures. In 2001, it was over not letting women into soccer stadiums. In 2009, it was over elections. Then there's been economic protests, environmental protests finally this. The Iranians, this time is much more serious than before. The Iranians haven't, the regime hasn't been able to put it down. It's clear that the Iranian people have sort of lost their fear. It's also clear that they are signaling that the regime no longer has legitimacy. The problem is, three months in, I don't see any indication that these protests have a platform, that these protests have a leader, beyond simply expressions of outrage. So what the Iranian government's going to try to do is simply wait the protesters out. In 2009, I'm not being flippant here, what really took the morale out of the protest was when Michael Jackson died. He suddenly, all the international press attention shifted elsewhere. That's what the Iranian government is hoping for. At the same time, when they try to repress people, what they do is they will throw thousands of people in prison, they will sentence them to draconian sentences, but then after a couple months, they let them out of prison for a weekend on a furlough. There's a strategy here. Because when you come out of prison, you may have been sexually assaulted. You certainly have been tortured in other ways. You're not the same man or woman you were when you went in. And so all your family, all your friends see you. 
and they see what happens when you cross that line, and then you return to prison. So right now, what the Iranians are counting on is the regime is a psychological game. Lastly, what makes this different is the Supreme Leader is 83 years old. We might be heading into a transition, and so there's a sense that almost everything is up for grabs. Well, is there anything, even the remotest semblance of what could be called an opposition movement or opposition leadership? Well, this is the problem. There is no clear opposition leadership. Certainly a lot of people um, respect the son of the Shah, um, who was overthrown in 1979. Uh, part of that may be sincere. Part of that might be a situation of the grass is always greener on the other side. You also have labor union leaders. You have um, some of the dissidents, um, environmental dissidents, and so forth. But what Iranians will say, because Iranians will talk much more forthrightly than others in the region, is that they don't want people from abroad coming back, um, that they had their opportunity 40 years ago and they failed. So the question is whether you're going to have a homegrown leadership, but Lord knows the Supreme Leader and the Revolutionary Guard are going to cut off anyone at the knees who might try to rise up. Yeah, and what would a moderate government even look like? Uh, given well, here's the thing, and this is where there's a, a glimmer of optimism. Um, first of all, when Ayatollah Khomeini led the Islamic Revolution in 1979, what he promised was an Islamic democracy. And people bought into that until about six months later when they figured out that he hadn't kept his promises. They're no longer going to go for that populism of being promised something. At the same time, if we look at Iraq, People could say, you know, the whole democracy debate, it was a foreign import into Iraq. But starting in 1905 to around 1919, you actually had an experiment in Iran with parliamentary democracy. In the end, the Russians and the Iranians saw had undermined it. But the fact is that you can look at democracy as sort of an indigenous part of Iranian political development as well. And so this is what the liberals would like. The, the impediment here is that you have the Revolutionary Guard. They've got tens of billions of dollars, and they're not simply going to go away. So even if most Iranians want a more liberal order, it's the guys with the guns that matter, and the question is, are they going to uh, try to? So we have a situation then in Iran where you've got uh, potential political unrest. We have, uh, I'm guessing, a generational issue as well. There is... Uh, whether they want to admit it or not, the inroad of the West. So what does Iran look like potentially 20 years from now? 20 years from now, I'm actually much more optimistic about what Iran will become. I'm actually much more worried about the next decade. Because when the Supreme Leader dies, there is no clear succession. The Revolution Guard is still out there. If we look at various periods of unrest in Iran after World War One, after World War II, for your historian listeners who are Cold War buffs, this is when the Azerbaijan crisis happened. Around the time of the 1979 revolution, what you have is chaos in the periphery as the army comes into Tehran to defend it. What's different now is you might have neighboring states, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Azerbaijan, Pakistan, uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan, try to interfere in the periphery of Iran as the military in Tehran, no one expected a civil war in Syria, and then it happened. Could we see the same situation in Iran for 10 years? That's what we need to sort of try to prevent. Yeah, and for the typical Iranian, 
what are they looking to, who wants an end to this? What are they looking for from the West? And what is the West doing at this point? Well, for the typical Iranian, they want moral support from the West, but they, there's a deep cynicism with regard to Western powers, including the United States. Again, to put on my historian cap, it was the Austrians who built the Iranian army, and then they made themselves unwelcome. Then the Belgians took over the finance back in 1905, made themselves unwelcome. That's when the Iranians turned to the Americans, because the Americans weren't as involved in domestic politics as the Russians and the Brits. Certainly, we made ourselves unwelcomed over time. That's why some Iranians are turning to the Chinese. But because they feel that they've always been exploited by outside powers, there's a certain element of xenophobia which exists inside Iran. They want an indigenous nationalist solution. I would suspect that when change comes to Iran, it's going to, be, it's going to look like France on steroids. It's not going to be pleasant, but it will be a lot better than the Islamic Republic. And how concerned should we all be uh, for its neighbors, especially looking at uh, Afghanistan and a few other places? Well, the way I tend to look at it is that if Iran wasn't actively seeking to export revolution, and this is part of both the Constitution and the family statutes of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, then the Middle East would be a much better, more secure place. Understood. Well, David Rubin, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. When we come back, I have a few closing thoughts for this hour on Cresta in the afternoon.